Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 26th, 2016, and this is episode 1740 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, my voice is not all the way back, but it's getting there. Uh, I'll give it a good rest over the weekend because i got PV3 coming up. I'll be out there with all of you guys uh, for that in California next week. More on that in a bit. Uh, but uh, it is Friday. It's time for the Expert Council Show, which is a good one for me because I get to take a bit of a break on the vocal cords. Got to do the bridges and stuff. And I got one question I'm handling for cleanup batter myself today. But other than that, this is one of my easier shows to do, though not as quite as easy as I thought they would be. I came up with this idea, like on Fridays, I'll just have this Expert Council call and I'll just dump all the council calls in and do a little bridge thing and it'll be easy. And it's still a you know three-hour process to put a show together. But that's because I love what I do and I love helping you guys learn more. And boy, are we going to learn a bunch of stuff today. Very diverse show, lots of stuff to talk about. Before we get to the council and your questions for them, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultant, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is, maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need ready made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at Ready Made Resources. 12 volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects. Check. They've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long term storage food? You want it by the can? or by the case, they've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? 
Got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast, Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, readymaderesources.com. Next up that I have Benjamin Franklin Vans newspapers, and I have an enlightened despot takes the throne. I'm going to read the despot one because I've given a lot of press to Benjamin Franklin lately in the uh, history segment. Frederick the Great, or the old Fritz, has become king of Prussia this year. He is in his late 20s, and he considers himself a benevolent absolutist. That's a nice way of saying that he is a despot that intellectuals agree with. He begins his reign by reforming the government, bureaucracy. He grants freedom of religion, freedom of speech. He founds the Berlin Academy of Science. He also starts a war with Queen Maria Theresa. I thought you were supposed to hit a girl. Maria's father has died, so she suddenly has become Queen of Hungary, Croatia, Bohemia, and other titles too numerous to mention here. Her relevant title for this war is Archduchess of Austria. The old Fritz wants the minerals of Silencia, which is considered the jewel of Austria. Queen Maria has been having trouble consolidating her power, so her advisors wanted to give up part of Silesia in exchange for King Frederick's support, but she refuses. Thus begins a lifelong fight between Queen Maria and old Fritz. He represents a change, and she represents a centuries-old older, uh, centuries order and the end of the line. My take by Alex Shrugged. Over and over again, people want to elect someone who will just get things done. No arguing, but such a system requires an authority with enough power to impose those solutions and maintain them beyond the life of other of the people we have entrusted with that power. We may trust the guy in power now, but how can we trust the guy generations down the line? The strategy in the U.S. politics is to give a lot of, pe a lot of power to a few people to get things done. To be fair, they might get things done, but with so much centralized power, it becomes vital to get your own guy in there to hold the office. That is why you see so many political fights name-calling and just plain lies because the stakes are so high. Of course, the real solution is to spread that power out amongst a lot of elected officials so that even if the wrong guy gets in, the damage you can do is minimal. But I hear, how will we get things done? The answer is carefully or not at all. If it can't be done by a federal government, then it will be done locally. It might be, not be very efficient that way, but again, a large centralized government never is efficient. The only organizations less efficient than large centralized governments are insurance companies, a uh, medical insurance company, or worst of all, a medical insurance company run by the government. I'm going to hold all my thoughts on this because my final question kind of plays into this, so I'll just let it be. That was the year that was the episode with the take by Alex Shrugged at tspwiki.com. Next up, uh, let me remind you about how you can support this show. The Member Support Brigade is a great program that I put together to kind of give back to the audience and earn an, in, an income at the same time. Basically, the way MSB works is you become a member. You can do that for $5 a month or $50 a year. You sign up, and uh, you set up your membership, and then you log in. And then there's like over 60 companies to give you discounts on stuff you're probably buying anyway. So you use those discounts, and you get all your money back and more. And that way it's a win-win-win. The, the people that do the discounts get incremental revenue, business they wouldn't have otherwise had. I get to do what I do, and, and you get to support the show you like or you wouldn't listen to it, and in return, you get your money back. I, that was how I put together the MSB. I had people at the beginning of the show that wanted to give me donations. I actually had a couple of people found out my PayPal address and sent me donations. I gave the money back. 
I refuse to take donations. What I do is not charity. It is a show that is designed to enlighten, inform, and educate. And in doing so, help people find liberty and freedom and self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And by doing that, I believe I provide value. And in return, some people want to support the show. But I was unwilling to do it in a way that was just basically, you know, here you go because I want you to keep doing what you're doing. I actually wanted to be able to say, here's a product that's worth more than you'll pay for it. And you get the show for free. That's what MSB is all about. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members to learn more. And remember, if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, you do qualify for a discount. Email me before or not after you join Jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Um, with that, before I bring on our first uh, expert council member today, which is Brian Black, um, I'll tell you what. I want to remind you one more time about Permaculture Voices 3. I think anybody that would have to travel long distance to be there in San Diego, it's probably you're either coming or you're not at this point. But if you're local to Southern California, you might want to consider like a last minute come on out. Um, the the get togethers after hours are worth the entire cost of admission. Just the people that you will be with and hang out with. It's amazing. And remember, if you are part of the TSP audience, you want to be made aware of any kind of you know get-together, group, function, anything like that while we're out there, get on the email list that I've set up for that. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Uh, look for episode 1740. There'll be a link in the show notes for doing just that. It's a simple form. Name and email. That's it. When PB3 is over, I delete the list. So it's not a marketing list. I won't be sending you updates or anything like that. All it will be is, hey, we're all getting together right now at the bar at the hotel, or we're all thinking of going to this place downtown. If you want to meet and discuss that, we're going to be down at the lobby, stuff like that. Or I'm doing an impromptu Q&A uh, on my presentation over here uh, from this time to this time, that type of thing. Anyway, if you can get the PB3, get there. If you're already coming, you're not on the update list, get on it. You want to be in the know so that you can be with the people that you want to know, and that's the members of this audience. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into um, the first question for a council member. This is for my good friend Brian Black. Uh, Brian's an amazing guy and uh, does a lot of great stuff over at ITS Tactical. The question that I have for him today is basically about people that are in denial about the need to provide their own security and defense. Brian, what do you have to say on this one? Hey, TSP, it's Brian Black from ITS Tactical here with another expert council question. Uh, this one comes in from John, who is actually one of our crew leaders on ITS, so appreciate your support, John. Uh, he asks, would you please give your thoughts on the dangers of denial when it comes to being responsible for your own self-defense? I'm curious about your thoughts regarding two aspects of denial. One, denying that anything bad will happen to someone and therefore no reason to get defensive training, or two, denying the reality that posting someplace as a gun-free zone will not magically protect those in that building. So sure, John, I'd be happy to go over that. Um, so first off, primarily with uh, self-defense, uh, I feel even kind of stronger towards self-preservation. While this is still kind of tied into self-defense, um, I, I feel that kind of looking at it from a self-preservation aspect is a little more important than just self-defense. Um, so I guess the, what I mean by that is that um, there are plenty of things that can happen to you other than getting into a violent altercation or uh, a violent situation, um, things like car accidents and anything like that, um, house fires and just natural disasters and things like that. So I, I feel like being kind of prepared for those is is kind of a step above self-defense. Yes, that plays into it, but, um, you know, and I've, I've kind of caught some flack sometimes for saying this, but when you need it, help isn't coming. And I don't say that as a spike to... LE or EMS not being able to do their jobs, but 
during a, a situation like that when EMS and the fire department and the police department are tied up with other people that are needing your help, like in a natural disaster, you, you need to be able to take care of yourself in that situation. So that's, uh, that's kind of what I feel like, uh, you know, regarding that, that denial that nothing bad is going to happen, that someone will always be there to help you out. I don't, I don't fully believe that myself. I feel like you've always got to be able to help to, to help yourself, and that not only ties in self-defense, but, you know, self-preservation as well, and, you know, those of you listening to TSP probably agree and, you know, probably share that sort of mindset, so I don't feel I have to keep going on about that, but um, so, back to your thing about self-defense, um, so, another thing is that, uh, you know, the, the adage is when all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail, and sometimes gun owners can view everything as a, you know, a gun solution, and that's not really true, um, there are plenty of times where a gun is not going to be the answer to, to all your problems. So, you know, a lot of people are quick to say, well, i just shoot and something was going to happen. Well, you need to be prepared for anything that can happen. And, you know, defensive training and something that's hand-to-hand is, is, is important, but also uh, so is the psychology and the physiology surrounding that, too. Um, I have been lucky enough to, uh, to train with Tony Blower in the Spear System, and that's something I would recommend um, wholeheartedly to anybody. Um, just the, the knowledge that I gained through Tony, not even just in the actual application of the self-defense skills he teaches with the spear system, but with that psychology and physiology I mentioned as well is, is re- very prevalent in, in what he does. So would, uh, I would very much recommend that. And um, I've, I know Jack's familiar with system, and I'm sure he's mentioned it a bunch on survival podcasts, and that's another thing that, that I'm into as well. So I would look into look into that. If I had to recommend things, that's what I'd recommend. But um, so back to your other question about the gun-free zone, um, there's actually a great study that came out recently from Stanford University on mass shootings and how most of them have been conducted in gun-free zones. Um, I'll link to the article that uh, a former Navy SEAL, Jeff Gonzalez, who's one of our contributors at ICS, wrote and um, basically wrote about how political correctness is literally killing our society, and a lot of that is coming from, you know, how we've let these gun-free zones, you know, kind of work their way into society. So... Um, again, hopefully that, that kind of answers your questions, and uh, thanks again. Uh, keep the questions coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore the world and prevail against all threats, www.itstactical.com. Thanks, TSB. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Brian said. What I kind of want to add is is a little bit of my take on the reality of violence and how we train and why I think a lot of martial arts training is a great way to get yourself killed. Um, and, and, and even some self-defense training with, with guns is also a good way to get yourself killed. When we do training uh, work with um, the Sistema guys, a lot of times we're working with people who are very good martial artists, very good fighters. A lot of times we, you know, we've worked with people that are um, kind of top-end amateur MMA fighters, guys I wouldn't want to crawl in a, in a ring with at all, um, especially with being practically blind in one eye. If they had if they had that knowledge, it would be uh, a really bad day for me, honestly. Some of the, I mean, these are big-time uh, uh, brawlers, tough, train every day, that type of thing. But they are so misled by the reality of violence because they're training and they're conditioning to spend most of their time on the ground because that's where a lot of these fights go, and they're training and conditioning to fight a single individual in the ring. 
And what we'll often do with these is we'll put them into a, a conflict situation. Say, don't hurt each other, but you're the aggressor. You try to defuse the situation, but you be a dick. You don't let them defuse the situation. It's a bar. It's a street corner. You want his wallet, whatever it is. And, and the whole thing will get going. And as it does, the, you usually pick someone you know that can handle himself a little bit better than the one that's the aggressor. So he's in a commanding position in the situation. And we just walk up to him with a training knife and poke him in the kidneys. Or you wait till they go to the ground. And I, I did some, you know, just basic little bit of training like this at the last workshop we just did. And while the guy's on the ground, you just walk over and you just stomp your foot like you're going to bash his brains into the concrete about two inches away from his head and let it slam to the concrete. And everybody stops and the guy looks back and you go, you just had your head completely busted open. You're dead. A full-grown man with a boot on hits your head like that against concrete. You're dead. That's what just happened to you. And that's why I like what Brian started out with Instead of just self-defense, self-preservation. If you're in any kind of a situation where you have someone being the aggressor, and there's any way to extricate yourself from that situation, you need to do it. Because this is what you need to assume. You need to assume that that person is not alone at all times. You need to assume that that person has some advantage that you're not aware of. It's not just that they think they're tough or that they're bigger than you. And there is... Another thing, there is no such thing as fair in a conflict like that. If you attack me in that type of a conflict, if you end up with a life-altering injury, I'm sorry. And I honestly, I'm not sorry. I don't care. I don't care. Because I'll guarantee you that I have done everything reasonable to avoid the conflict. And I didn't used to be that person. The more I learned about the danger of actual violence on the street, the more I became that person from a self-preservation standpoint. I'm not afraid of the person that I'm facing if I understand who they are and what they're about. I'm afraid of their buddy on the other side of the room. I'm afraid of the guy that I think has my back, but we just met, and it's actually a setup. Those are things to be afraid of. And if you do that, you start to kind of develop the eyes in the back of your head thing. And the only people you trust are the people you've been able to trust in the past. And it's the only way you can possibly put yourself in a position to survive what could occur. Because even if you draw a weapon, if the guy's buddy's behind you with a knife, all you've done is given him a cover story When the cops get there and you're laying with your kidneys bleeding out on the ground as to why he pulled the knife. That's all you've done. If you weren't aware he was there in the first place and weren't able to get yourself in a position to actually preserve your life. That's my thoughts on this. Anyway, let me uh, go on to a happier subject. I got one here uh, for Erica Strauss. Uh, I think Erica's, you know, everybody's favorite, honestly. Uh, she's a great person. Um, This, this is the basic question. I would like to know how to make a kick-ass, fruity, hot pepper sauce, specifically with peaches 
and cayenne. That's that's a much happier subject than trying to stay alive when somebody's trying to kill you. Erica, what say you on this? Guys, this is Erica from Northwest Edible Life calling in to answer this week's question for the expert council. So before I uh, hit the question, just a quick thank you. I presented at a big gardening event up here in Seattle called the Northwest Flower and Garden Show this past weekend, and I met a bunch of awesome folks from the TSP community. So it was really fun, and I just wanted to thank the folks from uh, the community who said hi. It was really neat um, actually meeting people in person. So good stuff. On to this week's question. Uh, John wants to make, in his words, a kick-ass, fruity, hot pepper sauce that he's even thinking about developing to sell at the farmer's market. He says he wants to make a peach and cayenne hot sauce, and he wants to know how to make this vision a reality. He's made some attempts where he purees fresh peaches and peppers and vinegar and spices together, but those sauces have, he says, come out pretty bland. So John asks if using fermented peppers or cooking the sauce could give him a bigger flavor punch. Okay, so this question is about hot sauce, but I think it's also a great opportunity to talk about this important technique that can take your cooking of all kinds for fresh eating or for food processing. It can take your cooking up to that kick-ass level. And that technique is called layering flavor. This is building a recipe so that flavor is added, concentrated, or purified throughout all the steps of a recipe. It's kind of the cooking equivalent of building a wall. You don't just pile all your bricks in a heap. You carefully set each brick, building layer by layer, so you get the best outcome. So most of the time, a really, really amazing meal or dish or sauce, whatever, it's not amazing because of one thing. It's amazing because of about five dozen tiny things that build up that flavor. At its most basic, layering flavor is simple stuff like salting the water in which you cook your pasta or your potatoes so that well-seasoned water will give you well-seasoned noodles, or sauteing the garlic and onions in a bit of oil before you add your tomatoes to make a better tomato sauce, or making sure that you use really great stock because you know that makes a better soup. So it's the same idea as building that wall, except with the recipe, we're making a wall of flavor uh, by trying to just build up that flavor, notch it up at each possible opportunity. So John, looking at your hot sauce through the lens of layering flavor, you listed a bunch of ingredients you're pureeing to make your sauce, onions, peaches, peppers, vinegar, etc. And all these ingredients are probably 80 to 99% water. So the first thing I'm thinking is we've got to get some of that water out of your ingredients to concentrate the flavors we want. And the second thing I'm thinking is, how can we best build on each ingredient's individual flavor? Can we caramelize the onion? Can we char the peppers? Can we slow roast the peaches? Can we ferment the vegetables? And then the third thing I'm thinking is, after we concentrate the flavors and enhance the ingredients individually, how do we bring them together and work on building and finalizing that flavor profile and get the texture and the final flavor we want for our finished sauce? So, John, most pepper sauces I'm familiar with are going to fall into one of three categories. The first is the fermented sauces. So this would be a sauce based on pureed, whole, fermented peppers or a fermented pepper mash. And these will usually have ingredients added after fermentation like vinegar, sugar, etc. And they're notable for that nice, unctuous, funky flavor that only fermentation can create. Tabasco is a fermented pepper sauce. So is sriracha. So if you like that, you know, slightly pungent undertone, then fermentation is going to be the way to achieve that. 
The second common type of pepper sauce would be like a boiled down hot sauce. A little closer maybe to a barbecue sauce. You've got the flavors of the chilies, the onion, and the other ingredients. They're cooked down thoroughly, uh, usually in vinegar or water or a combination of the two. And those ingredients are reduced down to evaporate out that extra water and concentrate flavor. And then uh, all the ingredients are typically pureed. So boiled down hot sauces can be thicker. They can be thin. There's a little bit more variation in this category. And then the third category that I'm really familiar with are, are basically chili-infused vinegar. So a, more or less a cold infusion of peppers and often other ingredients like garlic and spices in vinegar. And sometimes sugar or water could be added to mellow out that vinegar. So I love my fermentation, as you guys know, but my feeling is that for this particular question, because uh, you want that sweet, ripe peach flavor to be a big part of your hot pepper sauce, I would go with the boiled-down sauce method. I think that's where we've got the best chance of getting a nice blend of heat, sour, sweet, and fruity. And I think the kind of sauce you described is going to be better as a slightly thicker sauce. Not as thick as like ketchup, but thicker than Tabasco. So here's where I would start. I'd go ahead and pick about a half pound of red peppers. And I know you said cayenne, but what I'd also like to recommend is that you do maybe cayenne for the heat and blend in some red jalapenos, maybe even a sweet red bell. Because I think you're going to find that if you, you know, pump up that pepper flavor, you can get that pepper sweetness and fruitiness without the heat getting so out of control from the cayenne. So I'd, I'd blend your peppers on that. And then I'd be careful with the green peppers just because pure pureed with the peaches, they can give your sauce kind of an unattractive color. The green and the peach color kind of don't work to work so well together. So I would say it's better to go for that red, rosy kind of tone, especially if you want people to think peachy and fruity and nice when they look at your sauce. So uh, a half pound or so of peppers, not all of them killer spicy, just adjust how spicy you want by adjusting amongst your peppers and then chop those up. And then I get about a pound of the juiciest bruise when you hold them peaches. And I get a couple cloves of garlic and a small sweet onion. And what I do is I take about a tablespoon of oil in a big pot and I would saute the chopped up garlic and onions until they're just brown and soft and a little bit caramelized. Then I would add in the pepper and I would saute them just a bit too to open up that chili oil that's in those peppers. The heat will really open that up. Just be careful not to stick your face right over a pot of cooking hot peppers. You don't want that uh, inadvertently pepper sprayed in your own kitchen feeling to get you right in the nose. Okay, by cooking all these ingredients in a little oil, we are helping to liberate the oil-soluble flavor compounds that are in those vegetables. So we're laying on that level of flavor there when we build our flavor wall. And then once the veggies are soft and brown in places, what I would do is drop in the flesh from those peaches. I would just tear them up into chunks and toss them right in the pot and wouldn't bother peeling or anything. And then uh, in with the peaches, I'd add in probably two cups of water. And if you wanted to keep layering in that flavor, you might use up to half of that orange juice. So a cup of water, a cup of orange juice and cook everything down, the peppers, the onions, the peaches, stirring frequently until the moisture is nearly evaporated out of the mix and all of those vegetables are completely falling apart tender. And then, and this is totally optional, but hear me out, just before you pull those peaches and peppers off the stove, I would carefully tip in about a shot of bourbon and I would stir that in and, and heat it up. And this is going to do two things. 
First, it's going to further unlock more flavor compounds, the ones that are alcohol soluble. So that's building even more flavor. And second, because the bourbon is going to be aged in wooden barrels, it's going to bring a whole lot of depth. That sort of aged flavor will be a nice undercurrent of the sauce. And then I also think a peach bourbon hot sauce would probably sell pretty well. So then I'd take all that cooked down concentrated peach pepper flavor and I'd let that cool off and I would puree it. Get it as smooth as you can. And then as you're pureeing, add in enough apple cider vinegar to thin out that sauce and get the right tanginess that you're looking for. I guess you'll need about one and a half to two cups of apple cider vinegar, but do taste as you go. It'll depend a little bit on how much you cook down your vegetables and what final texture you're looking for. So then when you got that done, adjust your final taste with salt. And I think probably a little brown sugar would really round out those flavors very well. And then uh, you can leave a more pureed texture or you can strain it through a fine mesh strainer to just get out the more liquidy portion of the sauce. I'd expect something like this to keep in the fridge for a couple of months at least, but you would really want to watch for oxidation with the peaches, particularly if you don't strain. So that's what I would do as a starting point. And then you can start to really dial in the exact quantities of each pepper and additional spices and stuff like that to really tailor this sauce to your particular flavor palette. But I would recommend you just, you know, start with a simple cook down type sauce um, and see if that gets you in the direction you're looking for. So, John, I do hope that this helps give you a solid starting point for your peach pepper sauce. And I hope that it gives folks another way to think about maybe building flavor in their own recipes. Uh, guys, as always, appreciate your questions. Jack, thank you so much for the whole shebang that you do. And um, you guys keep these questions coming. I'll be back to chat with you in a couple more weeks. In the meantime, you can always come say hi at Northwest Edible Life, nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible. Talk to you later. And I look out of my window and what do I see? I see a red globe peach tree with blossoms all over it and bees in the air. I don't have another line, uh, rhyme. Oh, wait, I don't care. Anyway, just being goofy today, it is Friday. Uh, I do have a huge red globe peach, and I have another, uh, I think, a red ranger on the other side of the place, just in full glorious bloom right now. Bees all over it, and uh, I'm going to have to give that one a try. I'm not, you know, as many peach trees as we have planted, I'm not really a, a peach eater by and large. I like to do things with peaches, like peach mead, uh, especially a dry peach mead instead of the sweet way that most people make it. Uh, but peach hot sauce, that sounds good. I've, I've done some, some different uh, basting sauces with peach and apricot as well. Uh, for grilling. So that would be another way to look at that. Anyway, before, uh, or let's go ahead and get into the next one. Uh, we're going to also continue on the lines of basically growing stuff and maybe growing stuff that we could eat here, uh, with Nick Ferguson. Nick Ferguson, we have a question for you, uh, on, uh, orchard seedling beds and planting densities. So Nick, what can you tell us about that? Hey, Matt and all you TSP listeners, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty here with another expert counsel call and answer. This week is about nursery seed beds. I tell you what, lots and lots of questions on backyard nursery setup, gardening, seed starting, growing plants, how to organize and plan your spring garden are piling in. That's almost all I'm getting right now. I've already answered a lot of these topics on my podcast that you can find on iTunes and most other podcast directories under Homegrown Liberty, so check it out if you haven't already. So let's talk about seed beds, spacing the plants, and grow-out time. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version first and then fill in some details. It all depends on the types of plants you're growing and growth habits, but generally... You can plant around 20 shrubs or trees per square foot, with the maximum being up around 45 with some trees. 
Um, they will grow for a whole season and normally can be harvested, dug up to be transplanted or shipped as dormant bare root plants sometime in late winter. Now, you can grow those a lot, uh, a lot more spaced out than that, but those are kind of the, the more commercial densities that a lot of people will grow, uh, these types of trees and shrubs and stuff in. To give you a lot more detail, I would really have to know what all you're looking to grow and do some research and growth habits, etc. But I'll suggest that you keep the spacing around two and a half to three inches between the plants, which comes out to around, you know, 20 plants per square foot. Now, if you want a real handy way to plant that spacing reliably, just get yourself a piece of plywood or foam insulation sized to fit your grow beds. Maybe it's only four foot long. Mark out a grid pattern with chalk line and drill half-inch holes in the pattern material. Now you have a template that you just pick up and set in the next spot, right? And then all you need is a dibble stick smaller than that half-inch hole. And maybe even put a nail or a dowel rod, you know, crosswise on it so that you can set the depth that you want to plant the seeds. So you poke it in the hole and just do that with all your holes and then go through and drop your seeds in. Put one or two seeds in each hole. Then you can thin out the the weaklings, and then you just slide the plywood to the next spot, and you'll cover all the seeds with that sliding movement, and then water them all in, maybe put mulch on it, bam, done. You just planted that whole section, covered them all up, maybe you just slide it just a little bit, and then smack on it or step on it to, to press them all in, and now you've tamped them in too. So I grow those out for a whole year and then sell them in winter as dormant bare root plants. And if your market desires the trees, you know, you got a good market for it, then you could pot them up and sell them directly to customers during the summer, you know, when they're growing and flowering or leafing out and they look real good. But always make sure you're factoring in the cost of the potting mix pot and any other overhead expenses and add in your profit margin on top of that. Too many people do this as a hobby and spend money to sell their plants. So I hope that answers your question, Matt. If I've left anything out or you want clarification, head over to the Homegrown Liberty Facebook group, join up, and ask a follow-up question or questions so I can cover it on a podcast episode because this is kind of a big topic. But that's all I've got for today, guys and gals. Head over to www.homegrownliberty.com to learn more about me. Check out my new podcast. And I hope to see you on the Facebook group, too. Have a great weekend. American Decline Podcast. The United States is declining. Most of us know that. Most of us also know about the $19 trillion of debt that this country owes to other nations across the world. That's about nothing compared to the fact that we have $101 trillion of debt in unfunded liabilities. An unfunded liability is basically a debt that you can't pay in any given time. This is different from a debt because you can't pay it at all. 
a debt you can pay off over time, an unfunded liability you can't because you don't have the proper income or a way to make money to do this. $100 trillion of unfunded liability isn't easily paid off in this country. In fact, we can't pay it off because of the monetary system that we have. This country is completely based off of debt and economics. To explain this whole situation to you, I have to explain to you how money is created. Most of us think that money is created by a printing press with just numbers and letters on them. That's not how money is created. In fact, only 3% of this country's money is in printed form. That means if following this percentage you have $100,000, then you only have $3,000 of printed cash money. The question is, how is this possible? The answer to that question is banks. When a bank makes a loan, they don't just give you money out of someone else's savings account, like common sense would make you believe. Instead, they create money out of thin air and with nothing. They do this by plugging a number into a computer, and all of a sudden, money is born. It's not just that simple. Let's say you deposit $100 into a bank. The bank can loan out 90% of that money and keep 10% of it. So let's say they loan out 90% of that money, $90. They loan that $90 out to Joe. Joe goes and he deposits that into his bank. The bank can keep the 10% of that, 10% of that and loan another 90%. So they, they loan out another $81. Therefore, you just made $171 out of nothing. Since money is created out of nothing, then it's been borrowed into existence. If it's borrowed into existence, then you had to borrow it to be made, so you've borrowed it from nothing, so you're in debt to yourself. If money is created out of, out of thin air, then that means there's pretty much an infinite supply of money, because it's created out of nothing. Now, the problem with that is you're not going to be rich because of it. This country isn't going to be the richest in the world because of that. It's actually going to decline very greatly. That's because if there's a, more of something, it's always worth less. If there's less of something, it's always worth more. Take, let's say, copper or iron. That's not worth very much, is it? No, it's not. Now, let's take gold. That's worth a lot. There's very little of it. That's worth a lot of money. Iron and copper, it's not worth a lot of money because there's so much of it in this world. In order to fix this, you'd have to do things that no one wants to do. You'd have to devalue the money to the point of a depression, and while you're at it, you'd have to change the monetary and the currency system. The currency system and the monetary system are based off of debt, because our currency is called fiat currency. It's basically when the government tells you that the money is worth something. It's an empty promise. These would have to be changed in favor of a gold or silver-backed dollar. And the kicker is, if we don't do this, then future generations, and possibly our generation, are going to have to deal with it as the problem escalates over time. He works on his technicals and his deliveries. Kids got a future in uh, either radio or podcasting, and you know which way I'd say to go. Um, awesome, awesome, and that's the empowerment of our youth. Next question is one I, I, I really never expected to get, but I guess it's one that people have, and uh, we definitely have the right person to answer it. This question is for Tim Glantz, and it's about wearing military uniforms that are purchased surplus, and is there any... Thing to avoid? Are there any types of things that make it illegal? Is it frowned upon by active duty members of the military? Tim, let's hear about this. You guys sell surplus military uniforms, so it must be okay to wear them, but is there anything we need to look out for? 
Hey, Jack, all TSP listeners out there. This is Tim Glass with the Old Grouches Military Surplus with a question from Curtis on uh, military clothing. And Curtis asks, is it illegal or even frowned upon to wear military clothing in public? I like the idea of purchasing military surplus camo pants, jackets, shirts, etc. for hunting and camping because it's durable and priced well. I find myself down a rabbit hole of stolen Valor videos on YouTube and am concerned about getting accused of this. I have zero intention of wearing any uniform in a public urban space, obtaining military discounts, wearing patches, disgracing the military, etc. Are there certain rules for civilians to follow when buying wearing surplus camo? Are there acceptable patches such as flag that can be worn? And what's the best thing to do, say, if ever confronted? Love the show, Curtis. Well, Curtis, uh, I can tell from the question, your heart's in the right place. Buy your camo, wear it. You're not going to have it wrong. Any problem. Uh, camo pants or camo pants or camo pants. You're not claiming to be anything you're not. I'll give a little background here on the stolen valor thing and the laws and, and, and the deal with it. Uh, you know, the stolen valor phenomenon has been happening since since man went to war. And people will claim to have done things they didn't do. Claim to have been in the military when they weren't or claim that they were more than they were in the military. Uh, it's just human nature of some people. When there's something that's respected, they'll claim it. It's not limited to the military, of course. People claim all kinds of things. Uh, to be all kinds of things, they're not. <laughs> but the original stolen valor law was passed that made it a crime to claim military awards or service that you did not, in fact, have. That law was struck down by the Supreme Court after a challenge, um, and I agreed that it should have been struck down because simply claiming it is free speech. And what they said was, if you're going to pass a law, pass a law that makes using these claims to defraud people a crime. And that is what the subsequent laws say. Now it says it's illegal to make these claims with the intent or to defraud people for your own personal gain, which is, you know, a much better version of the law because now it's dealing with fraud between people. What they also said in that Supreme Court opinion and what's been part of the rise of all these videos is that <clears throat> the best counter for people making false claims is people telling the truth about them and ridiculing them. Uh, if you go actually read the Supreme Court opinion, that's in there. Uh, the best counter for false speech is true speech. And that holds true anywhere. And so you have these websites now that will go out and find these guys and expose them. And they do a really good job for most of them. They don't just say, hey, this guy looks to be a fraud. They, they will start seeing somebody, investigate what they're doing, send off for the Freedom of Information Act to actually get copies of their military records, and then go through and... When they do pop up with it, they will fully expose them. The only time you see them jump the gun is when it's painfully obvious cases that somebody is not in the military and claiming to be. Or when it's cases where somebody's out there trying to defraud people. Uh, we've had cases here, here in North Carolina where a guy bought some ACUs and he goes around, usually truck stops and other places, with the sob story of, oh, my wallet's stolen and I've got to get back to Fort Bragg right now and I need some gas and people are buying him. You know, the guy's made out like a bandit all over the place. Um, cases like that are real stolen valor. Uh, I just read a case the other day where a guy, you know, made all these claims of a career military Vietnam veteran, all this other stuff, and got a $30,000 deck built for him from a company that wanted to do stuff for veterans and all this. 
and it turned out none of it was true. And, you know, they're that company, you know, trying to do something good for somebody and was defrauded out of $30,000. That's stolen valor. You know, you know, going in in a uniform into a bar trying to get people to buy you drinks is stolen valor. Going into Applebee's on free Veterans Veterans Day for the free meal, you know, when you've never served with a you know a hat on or a uniform, that's stolen valor. That is the true you know definition of stolen valor. Wearing a set of camo pants, not going to get you any trouble. It's when you start popping insignia on it and wearing it with all the matching hats, you know, wearing insignia that says U.S. Army or U.S. Marine Corps, and trying to pretend something you're not. That's when you cross the line. A good analogy to look at it, you know, cops wear black cargo pants all the time. Lots of people wear black cargo pants. You're not stealing valor by putting on a set of black cargo pants. But now if you put on a belt and put a badge holder on with some kind of funky fake badge and walk around, now you're pushing the line, you know, impersonating a police officer. You know, if you look at that same kind of guideline for, you know, wearing camo pants from a uniform, uh, it's when you start putting the insignia on it and making false claims. As far as patches, you know, if it's something somebody had to earn, a lot of veterans will tell you it's in bad taste to wear it if you haven't earned it. Jump wings, combat infantry badge, expert infantry badge, even the tapes that say U.S. Army or U.S. Marine Corps, uh, you know, rank insignia. You know, it's not illegal to wear it unless you make claims that, hey, you know, I did this and you try to defraud somebody with those claims. But most most vets are going to look at you and think you're kind of a douchebag if you're wearing it, you know, and you haven't earned it. But, you know, you know, if, if the uniform comes with it, you know, rip it off of there. A lot of guys get out and sell their stuff with patches still sewn on it. Uh, other than that, you know, American flag patches, nothing wrong with wearing that. Now, you will see guys that will go out and they'll buy a uniform that's got Velcro and they'll festoon it with all these morale patches that say ISIS hunter or terrorist hunter or you know, the Punisher skull or stuff like that. Uh, and that's an illegal about that, but most vets that have been there done that are probably going to look at you and think you're a bit of a douchebag. Because, uh, you know, you know, but, you know, to, to each their own, but that's, that's exactly what most vets are going to look at and, you know, say to each other when they see you there, you know, if you're doing that kind of stuff. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with just buying some camo pants and jackets and wearing them. Just don't try to defraud anybody. And, uh, you know, you'll be safe and if anybody ever says anything to you say look i'm wearing it because it's functional i don't have any patches on here i'm not claiming to be anything i want if they want to push the issue then they're just being giant douchebags hope that helps hope that gives you some guidelines and kind of my opinion on it as well as you know what the law actually says about it um but yeah you know find what works for you and wear it have a good day, and uh, if you need, need more uh, help on this or want, want to talk some more about it, you can catch my email on my website at oldgrouch.com, uh, as well as lots of great surplus stuff that I don't have any problem with you wearing. Thanks for everything, and Jack, as always, thanks for the show. Yeah, a couple things I'll add is I've actually seen people out in full military uniform and just looked at them and went, no, you're not. Um You'd be amazed at the amount of your training as a soldier, as a Marine, as an airman, uh, as a sailor, that are simply, for Army, AR, uh, AR 670-1, the proper wearing and, and care of the military uniform, right? I think it's 670-1. It's been a while, right? But 
there's a right and a wrong way to wear a military uniform. And most douchebags that try this don't know how uh, to wear a military uniform properly. So an actual veteran can spot them in a heartbeat. And, and because of that, it mitigates your concern because an actual veteran could go, oh, he's got the U.S. Army ripped off. It's a fatigue. It's, he could be a prior service. I have, you know, old BDUs. I don't wear anymore because I've actually grown since I got out of the Army at, you know, 21 years old. But, uh, you know, I wore them a lot when I used to hike and hunt and stuff like that. I even had one of my old BDU uh, blouses, the, the, you know, the, the shirt uh, that goes on over the T-shirt that I cut the sleeves off of. Um, and use it like as a, as a uh, as like a fishing vest, but I you know I removed the United States Army and even my own name from it because to me once I took the sleeves off it, it it's you know even though I have a right as a prior service soldier if I want to to wear the uniform, um, it's no longer a uniform. So I don't want it to look like a uniform at that point. I want it to look like what is a repurposed piece of clothing. Um, but the Soul and Valor Act, the people that are the most upset and butthurt about this are people that never served. I think most vets, like, they get pissed over stuff like Tim was talking about. But some clown wearing a uniform and, and just trying to look important, they don't care because soldiers don't wear uniforms to look important. They don't. The first thing you want to do when you go on leave is get it off, right? I mean, I remember flying home and using the military uh, flights and... Uh, having to be in, in uh, basically BDUs or above to, to take certain military flights home. And when I would get to like Miami, like we'd fly into or Dover Air Force Base in Delaware and then get onto a civilian flight from there or uh, what have your date and then go to Miami, um, uh, Homestead, I'm sorry, and then go to Miami, right? So then the first thing you want to do is like go change, you know, um, Didn't want anybody making a fuss over anything. Just wanted to go home and actually be away from that life for a while, you know. So, and I'm upping it on anybody that travels in uniform or whatever. A lot of times it's expedient, it's necessary, and I am the guy that still will. If I see a guy like at Starbucks or something getting a coffee, just step in front of the line and go, "Here, I've got that for him." And when the guy says no, I'm like, "That's that's why I'm doing it because you said no, you said not to," you know. Um, So I respect my, my fellow brothers who still serve, even though I don't like how they're being used at all. I know the heart of the majority of the men that are there. But the, the butt hurt over the stolen valor thing is, again, primarily by people who have no idea what it's really all about. And if you've been defrauded or you know someone's been defrauded, yeah, I get it. But this whole, like, people were upset over this Supreme Court decision. I saw lots of butt hurt raging on Facebook, and it's like, what do we not get butt hurt about anymore? And anyway, I'll leak a little something for you. There's a butt hurt epidemic in America. There's butt hurt from the college students. There's butt hurt from the Democrats. There's butt hurt from the Republicans. Everybody's butt hurt. Everybody gets upset about the least little thing. People actually say they were abused because somebody said they didn't like online. You know, you've seen the, the meme with the doll, like, show me here where the internet hurt you, right? Pointed on the doll where it hurt. Um, But the butt hurt is real. It's an epidemic, man. It's raging. So me and a, and a friend are working on a special project to address the rampaging butt hurt in America and indeed around the globe. But I can't tell you who the friend is yet. And I can't tell you what it is yet. But when you see it, you'll know it. And you'll know I was part of it when you see it. Cryptic? Yeah. But sometimes you want to have fun, and that's what I want to do today. Next question I have is actually for Darby Simpson. 
And it has to do with managing land for grazing on clay soil. Um, it's basically, do you have any tips or comments for managing grassland on clay soils in wet climates? So this is out of my wheelhouse, right? This is like uh, dealing with cattle and stuff like that. The individual inherited a 100-acre farm uh, and uh, now has to figure out, like, how do I keep it running and what do I do to improve it? So, Darby, you're the expert on this one. What say you? Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another TSP expert council question this week that comes to us from James all the way over in Northern Ireland. And uh, James sent in a, an email wanting to know if I had any tips or comments on how to manage grassland on clay soils in a wet climate. And uh, I've actually been emailing back and forth with James uh, this week to get some additional information uh, because this isn't a real simple answer. Uh, anybody out there who's grazing animals um, that has, you know, clay soils, even if it's not wet all year, you, you've got all that rain that comes in in the spring and early summer. And uh, if you've dealt with, with pudging and damage from cattle uh, because of wet clay soils, you're going to want to listen to this. Um, James, like you, we kind of deal with some of the same issues here. We've got some lower pastures uh, with heavy clay, yellow, uh, yellow clay soil and definitely have some standing puddles at times, and it's something we're working through, and uh, I've got some tips here for you that I think will be helpful. Uh, just to give everybody a little bit more background about James, uh, he's got a 100-acre farm that is located near uh, Fermanagh, Northern Ireland, and uh, what he's wanting to do is, uh, uh, you know, rotate the, uh, the cattle and do a grass-fed beef operation. He also wants to experiment with some pastured poultry, uh, he sent me a lot of photos this week. He's got he's got some good slopes uh, on his place there, but as you get down to the bottom, uh, you know it really kind of levels out and with you know a, kind of a, a zone nine and a lot of rain. Um, you know where he's located, uh, getting down near the bottom, a lot of standing water, and then just a, a lot of water even on these slopes just because of the climate he's in. So, James, uh, what? What I have kind of come up uh, with for you is uh, the, the first thing I would tell you, uh, and uh, just for some more information here, James actually uh, said that he dug down about 12 to 18 inches, and he's got this dense gravel-like layer of iron pan in some of these wetter areas so that the, the soil just can't drain. And so that's where a lot of this, uh, you know, uh, uh, puddling comes from. And then, you know, you try and keep the cows out of there, but if they're in there even for a day and you get a little bit of rain, you get that that flooding again, and you do more more damage than good. So, um, James, the first thing I would tell you to do is in some of these, uh, you know, these these lower areas, uh, maybe even on some of the sloped areas as well. I don't have any problem uh, going in there with a soil knife and and going down a couple of feet and ripping that soil. And you're you know you're only going to be ripping about a, a two inch wide area but trying to rip that soil to bust up that hard pan that's that's way down deep so that we get some drainage in those areas now we don't want to go nuts with this uh but it's certainly a tool that's in the toolbox that we can use in some extreme situations and based on the photos that you sent me and what i've seen i, I think you've got some areas where that would be very very beneficial um, another problem that you mentioned is that you've, you've got these weeds that you call a rush weed. And, uh, you know, the, the photos of that, you get these things growing everywhere and you say that the cows won't graze it. Um, and so you've been going out there and trying to mow them off and you're wondering, you know, maybe should you spot treat with some chemicals to get rid of them? Um, 
you, you know, every ecology is going to have things that that grow well. So something's something's going to grow well in your soil. And right now we, we've got these rush weeds that are growing. Uh, and what we want to do, James, is we want to find something that's going to compete with them, something that's going to grow well in your climate that is also something that cattle and or sheep, uh, when and if you add sheep, are going to want to graze on. So, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you exactly what to use because we're in a, a, a totally, uh, you know, different environment, um, you know, half a world away from you. Uh, something we've been looking at here, and we haven't used it yet, but in some of our low-lying, wet, heavy clay soil areas is a legume called Lespedizin. I think it actually comes from, like, um, uh, South Korea, uh, but it loves, loves wet soils, and it's a legume that cows will graze on, so that's something I'm kind of looking at. I think you need to probably do the same thing to look at some legumes you can you can get out there because in those photos I mostly just saw saw grasses. Uh, now along with these perennial legumes that you might go out there and sow, uh, I would also tell you to do some quick, quick growing annuals, uh, barley, oats, uh, whatever. Um, we've got to increase our soil organic matter on the whole farm on all these grazing areas as quickly as we can so that it will hold that water, okay, and, and not let it just all puddle up. Um, you know, so you had mentioned uh, some different tools you're looking at possibly purchasing and using. I don't know if you've got uh, access to what we would call here a, a no-till drill. Uh, it's got little discs on it that just make about a uh, anywhere from a quarter inch to a one-inch deep little furrow uh, just in the very top surface of the soil. You're not doing any damage. And then you've got these different seed boxes. You can put these seeds in and let that go down into the furrows. If you could get a hold of one of those, um, uh, maybe from a neighbor or if you've got, you know, uh, your, your local uh, agricultural extension office. Um, I don't know what they call those in Ireland, uh, but here it's an extension office that's, you know, uh, through the, the different state universities, that the ag schools. Uh, you might be able to rent one cheaply. Uh, if you can't get a hold of those, that's okay. Uh, if, you, if you've got, you know, access uh, to a tractor, if you can rent one, borrow one, or if you own one, uh, you can get a great big seed spreader to, to put on the back of that. that that's a three-point piece of equipment, pretty inexpensive, looks like a great big funnel. Uh, worst case, you mix up all these different seeds after you do some research and go out there and just broadcast that out on top. And we want to do that about uh, anywhere from two to four days ahead of the cattle. And we can just let the cattle actually just lightly trample that into the ground uh, in the springtime uh, when it's warm enough for them to germinate and there's, there's moisture out there. Um, you know, that's that's a good way to, to go about getting that done, uh, you know, if you don't have access to these other tools that I've mentioned. Um, now, these, these low-lying areas, uh, you know, that get really wet in the spring that you'd mentioned, uh, that you said even, uh, you know, like in, in all but the best weather, there's standing water down there. Uh, one thought is maybe to put in a pond down there uh, to, you know, to catch and hold all this water for the summer. Um, the other option is just to not graze that at all in the spring and early summer. Just let that, that forage stockpile. And then once we do get into summer and it does get a little bit drier and maybe we're starting to expend some of our grazing areas on these slopes, then we take our cattle down there. Um, certainly, you know, those grasses and legumes that are growing down there, they're going to get more mature. They're not going to be as high a quality 
but that's okay. We, we just, we don't want to damage the land. I mean, that's, that's the worst thing we can do is to have the cows go in there and make a mess and have big standing puddles everywhere. Uh, we're doing more harm than good. So, you know, think about maybe banking that and only grazing that in specific times of the year. Uh, you could, if you want to do that, you know, graze that, uh, when the drier part of the summer hits or the fall, you can go in, uh, at that time of year and, and sow some stuff in front of the cows that'll grow well down in those low lying areas. You could also do some things like turnips that will bust up the soil down there. That'll also give you something to graze in the winter. Um, that's one solution that a lot of guys do here. Uh, these soil busting turnips, you know, you get the green tops, the, the cows like them. And honestly, they eat the tubers too. Um, it, it's a soil amendment. It breaks up hard pan soil. You know, you could look at using like a graza radish, a uh, longer, skinnier tuber. Um, just any, we want to get as much root mass down in there as possible. Also want to look for some things, uh, in these quick growing annuals or, uh, you know, long-term perennials that have got a really, really deep tap root to go down and help bust up that hard pan after we hit that with the soil knife. Um, you know, just, uh, just think about doing that and, and really staying out of those low areas in the spring when it's super wet. Um, something else you can do to help control this rush weed, uh, you had mentioned is going out and, and mowing, uh, you know, setting the mower up high. So you're, you're taking that, that weed down, uh, before it ever gets a seed head on it. That's just a good practice in general if, you know, uh, sometimes grass gets ahead of you. Here last spring in a five-and-a-half-week period, we had 24 inches of rain. So my low pasture, this 12-acre area, I mean, by the end of June, it was a mess. It was just a big standing – it had acres underwater, okay? And I had to go out there and bush hog it just to kind of reset everything and get some green stuff to grow again. I mean, sometimes you have to do that. That's the first time I'd ever had to do it in my life. I didn't like doing it, but – you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So if you got to go out there and top off some of these big dudes to uh, keep them in check so they don't go to seed, then, you know, that's that's what you got to do. Um, the, the biggest thing I can tell you, though, James, is uh, in your email, you'd mentioned you're rotating your cows, you know, may, maybe every two days or sometimes every seven days and you're giving them a bigger area. I'm a really big fan of daily rotations. And I know you're, you're working a 40 hour a week off farm job. I get that, but daily rotations and look, if they're not grazing everything, that's okay. Give them more space than they need, but keep moving them around and, and, and keep moving them around at, at a pace where they're not going to, you know, clump up. We're not looking for mob grazing here if we've got super wet soils. Uh, but we, we just want to get them to, to move around, get some impact on the soil you know, uh, spread out all that, that manure and urine and to, uh, if we're broadcast seeding, push all these seeds down in to get more stuff growing. I really just think you need to do some amendments with seeding and that's, that's really going to help you a whole bunch. Um, again, quick growing annuals are going to be your fastest way to get more organic matter into the soil and keep those cows moving. And if a big area gets ahead of you, that's okay. Just let it go, stockpile it, graze it later, or you can always uh, make hay off of it if you need to. But, uh, you know, that's that's the best thing to do is give them an appropriate amount of space every day to avoid pudging. Um, really, I think, James, that's that's about everything I've got for you, man. Uh, I mean, if I were you, that's, that's what I would be doing. Uh, and just don't be tempted to go graze an area that's too wet when you know you shouldn't. If you need to take them back up to the top and break out a bale of hay, 
uh, for a couple of days to, to let the water kind of dissipate. That's what you do. But implement some of these things, and I think you'll really see it to you know start to, to turn around. So that's what I've got. I hope you find this helpful, James. Thanks so much for sending this question in all the way from Northern Ireland. I enjoyed uh, emailing with you this week and, and answering this and hope you find it helpful. To learn more about me, you can go out to my website at DarbySimpson.com. A lot of free blog articles on all kinds of stuff related to uh, pasture-based, small-scale, beyond organic meat production out there, um, business tools, marketing, you name it, just all kinds of things you can read out there. Also, if you want to learn more from me in depth, I'm going to be headed out to California at the beginning of March. I'll be presenting a three-hour workshop, Permaculture Voices 3. I'm going to be covering all kinds of things related to marketing, selecting farmers markets, business planning, cash flow management, legal protection, uh, you know, free uh, marketing tools, uh, building up a good customer base, having a healthy, financially viable farming enterprise. I'm stoked to be going. I'm really pumped about it. I'm looking forward to it. And looking forward to meeting a lot of you guys out there. If you're on the fence about going to PV3, guys, go out, check out the lineup that Diego Footer has put together. You're going to be blown away. This is really aimed at helping people make a go of being profitable in the region ag segment. Jack, as always, thanks for kicking this question over to me. Everybody have a wonderful weekend and take care. Bye-bye. I'll, I'll tell you, those who have never really dealt with really serious clay soil, um, just from a standpoint of using your land, it, it can be insane. At Elijah Spring, we have really heavy clay soils and even like relatively flat roads with almost no bends in them. When we get lots of rain there, you know, we have a danger of trucks just sliding off the road by trying to drive in a straight line. Um, and cattle, as you know, are not the most graceful creatures, and there's a lot of injury potential there. So great advice from Darby. The next one I have for you is the last council member we have, and they are, let's say, a uh, probationary council member, though I don't think it's going to be a very long probation. This is basically an audition um, from a, a couple that uh, are the uh, parents of a gentleman that came to one of my workshops here uh, back in the fall. This is Sue and Michael Laprissi. And uh, they are homeschool parents, and their their kids are in their, all in their twenties and above now. And uh, they have they have homeschooled uh, all of their kids, and they have basically a lifetime experience in homeschooling. And they work with others now with homeschooling, uh, and they're just awesome people. And there's a lot of discussion about homeschooling, and there's a lot of questions about homeschooling. So I thought we would see if there'd be enough interest from the audience. You know, if I can get them a good, solid, two real good questions a month, we can bring them on board of the expert council and give us some more diversity. And, uh, hey, another lady on the council, how about that? Um, the question I gave them as an audition question is the most common question you ever hear. How will these kids get a social life? How will they learn to interact with other people when they're just at home? Uh, so Sue and Michael, what say you on this? You know, the, the number one question I think we get from people that are concerned with, you know, If I homeschool my kids or should kids be homeschooled? Hi, this is Sue Michael Aprees of halobysue.wordpress.com answering Jack's question. How do homeschool parents ensure their children have a broad and active social life with other children? Hey, Jack. Good question. I can't count the number of times in our 25 years of homeschooling that we've been asked this question. If you're worried about your child lacking socialization and homeschooling, don't. Just Google it. There are social opportunities for homeschoolers all around your community. 
If you're thinking about the usual kid stuff like sports, music, scouts, artistic opportunities, educational co-ops, along with playdates, field trips, park days, and teen times, but even if your child has a unique interest like robotics or wildcrafting a bow, Celtic dancing, or some interesting hobby, if there's a group, if there's not a group, you can pretty quickly get a meetup with interested people. The focus is to find the things that interest your child and let them socialize in a productive way like hanging out with friends and making a leather wallet or learning drawing techniques. As our kids got older, their socialization included some work opportunities, mowing lawns, babysitting, often for working homeschool moms, learning how to negotiate, which is something we all do every day, not just sitting and following directions and having someone telling you what to do. Our favorite part about homeschool activities is the lack of crowds. All the government school kids are generally tucked in their little boxes, and there are actually times we only see zookeepers at the zoo for our first hour or so in the morning. We've been homeschooling our seven kids for over 25 years. Our oldest four children range in age from 21 to 28, and about six years ago we adopted a sibling group of three. So we're still homeschooling our eight, nine, and 16-year-olds, along with our first grandchild, who's three, and a friend's four-year-old. It's pretty busy at our house. <laughs> Over the years, our family has started a few of these groups on things we found interesting, like scouts and some educational co-ops, to enhance the skills we wanted our kids to learn and to hang out with friends that we liked. My older kids will tell you that the hangout with friends was their favorite part. We truly believe we are created to crave freedom, and we love the TSP encouragement of freedom of association. And we think homeschooling allows for that, along with letting your child develop their own identity, not one wrapped up in the system. If you ever just sit and watch a brand new toddler learning to walk, you'll notice their desire to pick their own direction and the frustration they feel when they're redirected. While children obviously need boundaries, it seems our culture has been on this mission to remove all the fun and freedom from childhood. If you choose to homeschool and start allowing your child freedom, I think you'll start seeing areas in your own life where you can free yourself. I don't know about you, but I'm still being told, stay in line, color inside the line, sit still, be quiet. When I don't want to, mostly because I don't have to, it totally throws people off. We have to teach some of the kids in this next generation to fight for their freedom. But if they don't know what it is, they won't fight for it. It feels like parents are starting to understand that the erosion of our freedoms are largely due to the indoctrination of the government schools. Homeschooling is growing. And even though the Homeschool Legal Defense Association still lists the number one reason to homeschool as being religious or moral convictions, you might be surprised to know that the number two reason that parents are say, saying they're pulling the kids out of the school to homeschool them is concern for an unsafe school environment. And we're not talking about Sandy Hook, just normal day-to-day -day bullying. Which brings us back to not just socialization, but healthy association being a product of the freedom to choose who you hang out with. We'd recommend all parents go back and listen to Jack's episode with Trevor Bryce on bullying and talk with your kids about their school environment. Also, read about the government school model, why it was designed to keep the herd together and teach them to conform from a very young age. There's a purpose for everything, and if you do some research, you're not going to like the purpose here. But kids do conform because they figure out pretty quickly that conforming is better than being picked on by their peers or being called out by their teachers. So, how do we design healthy social activities for our children? While well, just getting started homeschooling is great, there may be some of you out there whose kids will do best with a quarter or semester at home, 
without too much socialization. So you guys can get to know each other and they can de-stress. You are your child's one person they most want to be with and have a healthy relationship with. I just want to throw out this video I saw today where they have these couples sit down in front of a camera and ask the couple, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, who would it be? As they go through interviewing the various couples, the answers range from Justin Bieber to Nelson Mandela. Then they have these same couples watch while they ask the children the same question. One of the children says, does it have to be someone famous? But 100% of them say their parents or their family. It's you. You are the first line of defense to a healthy social life for your child, and they're worth the investment. We noticed early on in our homeschool journey, because you didn't see weird kids but whole weird family groups that are strange or quirky, fun, and some other flat, unflattering names that we, we don't use anymore, is that it's not just homeschool families that are weird. It's all families that are, are interesting because we all come with unique family dynamics that produce unique individuals. If you want your child to have a healthy social interactions, a great start is you being the kind of person you want your kid to be. A self-reliant problem solver who's cheerful, forgiving, and enjoyable to the people around them. So whatever you do, don't be fake. Kids know, and fake is far more damaging than being strange. So just like the concepts in permaculture of designing everything, homeschooling allows you to help your kid design those social interactions based on their own likes. You can start by simply asking them what they're interested in and then going and doing it. If you and your child haven't spent a lot of time together, you might start with something simple like watching YouTube videos. You pick one and then you let them pick one and you kind of go back and forth and you'll start knowing, you'll start noticing that the sidebar has similar videos and you'll notice what sparks their interest. So you can also scroll down through Netflix watching documentaries that you let them pick and then you pick one so that you're exposing them to something new. You can go to the library and tell the librarian what you're doing and that you need a variety of books for whatever age your child is. They really love to help parents at the library. Be sure not to just pick fiction, though. My totally unscientific estimate is 30% of kids don't like fiction, but they might love science or crafts or history stuff from the nonfiction section. We really understand not knowing how to help your kid find their thing. When we adopted our son, he was 10 and had been told what to do, where to sit, and what to think his whole life up to that point. He was thrilled with the idea of homeschooling until he realized that he had to think and stop making decisions for himself. It took five years to help him figure out who he was and how to find a passion for something, but it's worth it. He went up to Nine Mile Farm with our oldest son and me in January and came back and used his own money to stop making quail tractors and is working on welding a metal rabbit hutch from Spear Angle Iron. You get to know your kid, help them find their passion, then go do stuff with fun people who like the same stuff. Something we didn't think about when we began schooling was all the cute older people who are at home during the day with nothing to do or who might work out of their home and will let your kids come in and learn some skills from them. This is such a great mentoring opportunity with the right neighbor-kid combination. Even if your kid tries cabinet building with a neighbor and neither of them like the fit, that kid can go down the street to the neighbor who builds airplanes and learn how to put skin on an airplane wing, weld a giant windsock together, and chop, stamp, and cut his own designs 
without 12 weeks of safety classes first. And I'm saying that because we live in like a really quirky neighborhood. As our kids grow and move through life, we've tried to help them develop relationships with people of all ages. We've also found that too much time with the born-on-date crowd gives our kids some bad attitude and sassiness that's really unpleasant. We feel it's much more natural to spend time in a variety of circumstances with a variety of age groups than it is to spend the majority of your time with 20 to 30 kids your exact age. Think outside the usual box when it comes to social activities. Here's our latest example of shared purpose socialization. When we want to get shit done, we invite people to do it with us because we're competitive and like the accountability. We get together with a group of friends and are using Matt Power's Permaculture Student Course with our kids, and we meet up on Wednesday nights to learn about seeds, swales, hugel mounds, quail, hard cider, all the stuff. Then once a month, we go from yard to yard knocking out a project for one of the families. The little kids play with ducks and bunnies and chicks, and we have a fantastic time being together. And at the end of the day, we've improved the world around us instead of using it up. If you're interested in homeschooling your kids, don't let the fear of a lack of socialization stop you. Remember, homeschooling is a lifestyle as well as an educational choice. It's a journey for your entire family. There are plenty of opportunities for your kids to develop relationships with children of all ages who they enjoy being with. I hope this answers your question, Jack. If you have further questions or comments, leave it on the show notes. Or come see what we're doing and ask questions at halobysue.wordpress.com. This is Sue and Michael Laprise of Halo by Sue for the Expert Council, helping you design the life you'd love to live. Thanks, Jack, for your inspiration to all of us. Well, as I said, I don't think the probationary period is going to be very long, but um, <clears throat> I'm going to springboard into the next uh, segment, which is the final segment, and it's a question that I'm going to answer uh, from a listener that I think fits really well at the end of today's show and kind of ties back to the history segment. But I want to kind of prime that pump a little bit first. I, I, I want you to just consider the incredible diverse array of, of opportunity that exists for homeschool students today. How much, how much more rich and, and, and developed it is than, than, than a public school could ever offer. It's like, like you couldn't even make public school work that way. You, you couldn't. You couldn't give children that type of freedom because there's too many kids in one place to allow for it. It doesn't work. You need a decentralized system for this to work. Yet the people that are the biggest victims of the government school system are the ones that defend it with the most effort, with, with the most zeal. That how would our children like? It's, just, it's just, when you think about it, it's a preposterous question, isn't it? How would children ever develop social interactions with other children unless we lock them in a room with 30-odd other children in a place they don't want to be in a, a, a pseudo-prison-like environment? How would they ever possibly... Do, do you realize how ridiculous that is? And yet, every single person is a parent that makes that argument is a product of that abusive system. So the victim is defending the victimizer. The lie has been so effectively told that the people that are victims of the lie re repeat and parrot the lie. Okay, just think about that as, as we go into the final question that I have for today's show. Uh, this comes from a listener called Zach. And Zach's actually on the blog quite a bit, so he's a known quantity. And I know this isn't a trolling question, and I know his heart's in the right place, and I know this is, this is like a serious, it's not like a... 
Morode's argument against anarchism. It's a sincere question. And I'm going to answer this question in two ways. I'm going to answer it from a philosophical standpoint, like if we ever became an anarchist society, how would you answer it then? But I'm going to start out with answering it from a pragmatic, practical standpoint as it pertains to us as individuals making a decision for ourselves based on morality. It says, I'm a libertarian-minded person who sees himself headed towards anarchism, but I can't figure out a couple of things. With minimal to no government, how do you deal with people legitimately who need help? Not adults, kids. How does an anarchist world ensure that kids aren't going to be harmed? If a person wants to live their life in the gutter, I understand that. But how do you deal with the fact that there are often kids that need to be saved from a parent? We are starting the process to provide foster care for kids, and I hate how the system works. But I believe the goal is to help kids. Uh, they do horrible job of executing that because they're a state agency or a minion of the court. But I think people who work there genuinely want to help kids, even if they do not know exactly how. How do you deal with kids who have parents that are abusive, neglectful, careless about their education, truancy, and stuff like that? Thanks. Don't rip me a new one, please. I'm legitimately curious. I absolutely know Zach's asking a legitimate. This is a legitimate question, and it's a direct result of the programming of the system. And philosophically... I'm not calling Zach stupid here, but philosophically, it's a stupid question. And that's how we'll answer the question secondly. So if we ever actually move to a point where enough people saw the heinousness that is the state for what it is and said, we need to do away with this and we need to replace it, how would we do that? Fair question, we'll get there. Let's start off with a practical, pragmatic question. For right now... How we would do that when we get there doesn't have anything to do with your personal philosophy and whether or not you're ready to step across the world to anarchism. The only question you need to ask yourself is if you were unburdened by the state, if there were no laws that applied to you, and you were allowed to just live your life completely free of the state and its burdens, would you go out and start punching little kids in the face? And I think that Zach and I and most people would answer that question with no, I, I, I would not. Okay? Okay. And if you saw a child that was in desperate need of assistance, would you use any and all means available to you to assist that child and prevent them from being victimized? And I think that most of us would answer yes. And if you saw a person who was starving in a gutter that literally was trying to pull himself out of that gutter, if there was something you could do to help them, at least to give them a little bit of help to see if they're going to move in the right direction, would you do it? And I think most of us would answer the yes. So if I make the decision to become an anarchist today, if I just say to myself, I get it now, okay? And I'll talk about why you would do that in a second. But if you do then what you're saying is I no longer believe that it's okay for the state to make me do this stuff. But it doesn't mean I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be you know, stupid like the farmer that had Br'er Rabbit, and Br'er Rabbit says, please don't throw me into the briar patch, so the farmer throws him into the briar patch, and the rabbit wanted him to the whole way. I'm not going to let reverse psychology or even direct psychology work against me. I'm going to do morality for morality's sake, no matter what. And... If I was unburdened by taxes and, and the money that's taken from me at the point of a gun, I would use a lot of that money to help other people. I believe that I would because I use a lot of the money that's left right now to help. If you're going to become a foster parent, 
I mean, the, the little bit of money that comes along with being a foster parent does not cover for the care. You're right now saying, Zach, I am willing to give of my life to help someone. There's no coercion in this. No one's going to make you do it. In fact, there's a hurdle to it. There's so many kids that need your help right now that you could be helping already, but you have to go through a process the government determines whether or not you're suited to help a kid who's in a victimized situation right now inside a state care facility where they might as well be in prison that has the resulting output of most of the children that come out of that system go back into a system we call the criminal justice system. So you're willing to do this with nobody putting a gun to your head. And you'd probably be doing more by now if there wasn't the state apparatus in the way. So what that all means is all your concerns, everybody out there, if you are worried about what would happen to the poor, what would happen to those who are victimized, what would happen to anything and everything, how the roads would get built, whatever, you are already saying, I am committed to helping in this situation, whether I'm forced to or not. So, from a pragmatic philosophical standpoint, You realizing the morality of becoming an anarchist, all those things that we, that we are worried about possibly being necessary for the state, you crossing the line doesn't change the fact that they're there. And I am one of the few anarchists, I believe, that's outspoken about these things that will be honest with you and say, you will probably die inside a state-run society. You probably will never see an anarchist society in your lifetime. The state isn't leaving yet. In fact, let's talk about the morality. Why am I an anarchist? Am I an anarchist because I think the state sucks? No. I, I thought the state sucked for 20 years as a libertarian, and I didn't become an anarchist. Because So the state sucking was not a, enough of an argument for me to cross the line. What the eventual argument was was the non-aggression principle. Is it morally wrong to take something from someone else against their will via violence or the threat of violence? Yes or no, the end. Yes, it is. Then it's wrong for the state to do it. There's no way around that argument. Saying that we get a choice in who steals our money is not a way. So a, mor a moral reason for anarchy is why I'm an anarchist. And this is why I think we have the whole thing literally upside down. Because tell me if this sounds like something that, if you're not an anarchist yet, makes sense as a phrase. Descent to anarchy. Think about the word descent. Descent into anarchy. Now, an anarchist is, if you're an anarchist, you've got like this brushling of, of the thin hairs on the back of your neck going up right now like a porcupine that's pissed off, right? Because you know that's a, the, wrong. But the average person that's like struggling with this, that's, well, that makes sense. You descend into anarchy. No, my friends, the phrase would be ascent to anarchy. Ascent into anarchy. Anarchy, true anarchy, is the most moral of all philosophies. Because what it says is, I can't use coercion to get you to do what I want you to do. I can't force you. I can't use force. I can't use the threat of violence. And even that part of why we don't generally vote as anarchists is, if it's to pass a law, if it's to, to require something to be done, my vote lends credibility to someone else violating your freedom. 
Now, I believe there are times to vote. I believe if the vote is, it's a measure to remove a law. So now we're removing the option. We're limiting the state's ability to use force. I'll participate in that. If it is removing criminalization of a substance or an activity that has no victim, I will participate in that. Right now, the state is why we need a state. Right now, the state is why we need a state. But before I get into that and kind of the philosophical answer to like, where would the roads come from? Who would take care of the poor? Who would defend the weak? All, all those questions. Before I get into that, just one more time. Please understand, this is a moral decision. It is not a political decision. It's a moral decision. You either believe that forcing people to engage in activities or be deprived of their property against their will is always wrong or it's not. And if you don't think it's wrong to take other people's stuff, then it's okay to not be an anarchist. But when you, if you're going to stay any, and I, I know this is going to be a butthurt word for people, any type of statist, and if you're a libertarian, this, and I'm, 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 I'm softening this because I was a libertarian for for two decades. If you, and anarchists would call me a statist, and my fellow anarchists, if you don't really explain yourself, you're not helping. In, in, the, in the words of Chandler Bing, you think you're helping, but you're not. Okay, that's not how you reach across the aisle. But the truth is, if you soften it, you can make them understand what you're trying to say. Even if you're a libertarian, you are a statist. Now, are you a statist to the degree that a Marxist is? Well, no, of course not. I mean, you have to be retarded, my fellow anarchists that make that kind of assertion. You have to be retarded to say that. But... It doesn't mean you're not a statist. You believe in the need for a state. And that state can still, there's no way to have a state and re completely restrain it from violating the non-aggression principle, which actually is the main thing that libertarians also adhere to, non-aggression. So, I, I, I mean, gut check yourself right now. Everybody that's, that's where Zach is on the, on the edge here, uh, with, like, like, you think that if, If you say, I'm an anarchist, like the world will split in two and anybody will actually give a shit, right? Or it's going to change the political landscape of America. Listen, folks, in this coming election, your vote's not going to count. It doesn't matter. You can write in Snoopy the dog and it will have just as much of an effect as voting for Ted Cruz or Donald Trump or Hillary or, or Bernie Sanders. This is all going to be orchestrated by the media and orchestrated by... You know, which gang of thugs is more effective in rallying their gang of thugs? The free-thinking independent people of this country do not swing elections. The people they call independents in this, independents in this country are the most brainwashed of all. They, they actually believe in both sides of the dichotomy, let alone one. I mean, that's even worse. The mushy middle, the 20% that flip and change elections. You don't want to be that group. At least the people that stand on the left and stand on the right know know what they think they stand for. But now let's move on. We've already established that Zach or you or anybody else out there becoming an anarchist by saying, I get it now. I get that non-aggression makes sense. I get that taking people's things are wrong. I get that uh, imposing any kind of penalty on anybody whatsoever for any sort of victimless crime makes no sense. I, I get all those things. And, and then morally... This is the logical outcome. But I'm still struggling with the fact, if we actually succeeded in this, how would we do these things? 
Well, first of all, you're assuming that the government does them now. That, that there's nobody, that, there's no children that are victims of, uh, of abuses. And some of the children and the greatest victims of abuses are in government institutions, whether they're government schools, government foster homes, or government, government juvenile justice systems that are, that have our children being abused by the state that have, you know, not really committed any true crimes. They're in, there, there's kids in our juvenile justice system for things like truancy and drug possession. So the state's actually abusing the people that it pretends that it protects. When you say we need the state to build roads, you're, you're, you're making an assumption that our roads are perfectly safe. When we have bridges and overpasses ready to collapse across this country and a failure of government to maintain its infrastructure that it promised to maintain. So we're, we're, if we're going to be, have an honest discussion here, we have to actually look at it and say, all these things the government says needs to be done, how good are they at doing them right now? So I want you to think about this. The federal government of the United States of America, just from individuals at the income tax level, this is not corporate income taxes, this is individual income taxes, takes about a trillion dollars a year away from the American people. Could the American people, if they had their trillion dollars back, by the way, that's not Social Security, okay? That's just income tax. And over 40% don't pay any income tax. So somewhere in the neighborhood of about 54% of us that are paying income tax are paying over a trillion dollars in income taxes to the federal government, plus half a trillion in Social Security money that goes in from everybody. Okay, so call it a trillion and a half dollars if we just gave that back to people. Don't you think the American people then could afford to take care of things without government? How much of that money is used in the intermediary function of government for people that don't really need to exist? To exist, how much of it's used to prevent fraud and abuse, and it fails to do that because it can't. Where fraud and abuse prevention is pretty easy if it's a local community deciding who it helps. In your local community, you know who the guy is that you've offered a job to and won't take it. And you know the guy that just can't hold a job because he's got an injury. And you can tell the difference. See, what government's done is actually made all the problems worse. Because since we expect government to do it, we don't pay attention to what's going on around us. The bigger government's got, the higher the invisible walls between the houses and the suburbs have become. You know what I'm talking about, the invisible wall? Like you've got this little privacy fence or whatever that you can see over, like Wilson did in uh, tool, the Tool Man show, right? But no one really looks over. That like, like when you walk out of your front door and, damn it, your neighbor's doing it at the same time, you kind of wave and acknowledge each other and, hey, how you doing, how's the weather, blah, 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 gone, right? That invisible wall is a direct result of government. And I've seen it in my own lifetime, and I'm not that old. I'm only in my 40s. There was a time that I remember where you knew every neighbor you had up and down the street, regardless of where you lived. And there's now where most people couldn't tell you who lives on their street. So when you say, how would we without government, what you're actually inferring is that we need a group of psychopaths to boss us around and make us not let people hurt children. Or make us feed hungry people that can't feed themselves. 
this last month, we had to clean out my, my father-in-law's home. And we had a whole bunch of stuff that was just low-end furniture and things that nobody in the family really wanted. They weren't sentimental, and they weren't really of value to us because we pretty much all have what we need. So we called up a company called Mission Arlington, who sent a great big truck and two guys and loaded it all up and took it to Mission Arlington. And they give all that stuff to people that need it. And people that are hungry go there and get food. And they're 100% private. No one from the government gives Mission Arlington anything other than a tax exemption, which without the government they wouldn't even need. There's no coercion there. People that work there as volunteers choose to go work there as volunteers, and the people that work there as employees choose to be employees and do the work for a given salary based on the additional value that they bring. And no one makes anybody do this. Sitting on my desk right now is an iPhone. I can use that iPhone to take a picture and send it to a person in, in Australia or Argentina, and we can share information. I can take my pulse with it. I can track how long I walk every day and, and improve my health with it. I can record a podcast with it. I record a video with it and put it on YouTube and broadcast it to billions of people around the world. Nobody had to make anybody build that iPhone. Outside of my, my driveway is a vehicle made by Ford Motor Company that is a marvel of engineering, an incredible marvel of engineering. Nobody put a gun in anybody's head and said, you have to make this vehicle. And nobody put a gun to my head and said I had to buy that vehicle. The complexity of my Ford F-350 boggles the imagination. How would we have roads without government? We have cars without government. If, if private industry can build a car or a truck, the marvels of engineers that they, the engineering that they are, then, then we can build a flat thing. That's what a road is. It's a flat surface with a stripe going down the middle. We have private companies right now building spacecraft. And here's the thing. Politicians and governments, they don't build roads. Politicians and governments, they don't pay for roads. You and I pay for the roads right now. And you and I build the roads right now. All government does is tell us where, when, and how, how much, how fast, how long, And if anything, makes our roads worse than they could be today. It is not politicians that take care of poor children. It is people like Zach with big hearts that take care of poor children. It's governments that decide who can and can't do this. It's governments that spent the last few decades making one of their arguments about gay marriage. But if gay people can get married, they might be able to adopt children. That would be horrible. Oh, yes, because a child is much worse off with two mothers that love the child than the child is in a state foster home, crammed in with eight other kids that feel nobody wants them. I personally don't even think same-sex couple marriage is the ideal place for a child to be raised. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's better than a lot of other alternatives that government favors. Look at health insurance. How would we have health insurance without the government? Well, I think we all agree since the more government's gotten involved, the worse health insurance has become. How many different options for 
affordable health care would exist if government just got out of the business. Just said, you guys can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. Oh, by the way, you know, Aetna, you know, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, all you guys concentrate. Yeah, we're not protecting your monopolies, though, guys. You're, you, you, you're done. You're on your own. You, you, you do what you want, but we're not going to regulate your competition out of existence. If a doctor wants to set up a retainer program like attorneys do for his patients, he can do that, and there's not shit you can do about it. If some guy wants to open up a brand new clinical facility that does all the testing and measurements and stuff that you guys do outside of your system and says they have their own independent third-party certification and let the market judge it, they can do that. And if they want to do the same lab work that you guys charge $5,000 for for $50, bucks, and they can do it, and the public trusts the work, it's up to them. Bye-bye. Go out. What would happen to the cost of healthcare in America? I mean, the, the entire argument that we need government to do these things predicates that we're doing the best that could be done with government right now. That, that human beings <clears throat> don't have a desire to cooperate with each other. I mean, that people would just sit around and go, boy, you know, we'd sure like to have a road between these two towns, but... Uh, Without government, we, we can't make this connecting, relatively flat thing that goes from this point to that point. Uh, because, you know, uh, it's too hard. We need somebody to, to steal money to, to, so that we can have this road. Without somebody to steal money, it'll never happen. It, it, it's like saying, you know what, we're afraid that our neighborhood will be victimized by uh, gangs. So what we should do is go find the gang that's the least bad and pay them protection money and let them run their territory in our neighborhood. Think deeply about that statement. Think deeply about how it applies to what we do now. I want to put you in a couple positions out there as a, as a typical person. Most of you listen to the show, you're more open-minded and enlightened than the average sheep, but you're not that much different morally, really. You're just, your morals are less clouded by bullshit because you get a, you know, a weekly inoculation from me of anti-bullshit vaccine. But I'm just going to give you a couple scenarios. There's no government. There's no government whatsoever. You see a guy walking down the street. He clearly has more than you. He's on his way to do something you know not what. You have a little bit less this week than you'd like to have. You'd like some more. Are you going to run over, beat his ass, and steal from him? And by the way, he looks weak. You think you could do it? No? Okay. All right. You're watching this same guy walk and there's no government. There's no no one's going to come after you and put you in a cage if you intervene. And you see some thug come up and start beating up this guy trying to take his stuff. Are you going to intervene? And you might say it depends because okay, let's say that you're there, I'm there with you and three other guys are with us and you we all see this going on and one of us says, "We need to stop this. Are you coming along for the ride?" I think most of you would say, yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah, okay. So when we get the guy, are we going to put a rope around his neck, throw it over a tree and stretch his neck? Or are we going to find out what's going on? I'm going to find out what's going on, okay. Turns out the guy's just what he looks like, he's a thief. Here's what I think would be done, personally. If he hasn't put a gun in the guy's face or something, just basic thuggery, beat his ass and say, man, if we see you around here again, you're going to get worse. It's not safe for you. This behavior doesn't happen here. There's no one to report this to. Get out of here. If it turns out the reason the guy's accosting this guy 
is he stole from him. And he wants his property back. And it becomes evident that the guy should have his property. Like, it's completely obvious the guy should have his property back. It's my watch. It's engraved with my name on the back of it. He's got it on his wrist. Pull it off and stuff. What's your name? What's your name? This is his watch. How did you get it? I took it from him. Why? Because I wanted it. Okay, ear shoved in the mud like a little kid on a playground. Here's your watch. Bye-bye now. You don't think things like that would happen? What if when they go too far? Let me ask you a question. Would you go too far? Would you go too far? Ascent to anarchy. Because if your answer is, yes, I would. Okay, then you need a state. And you need to stay down with the status until you're ready to come up to a moral level where you actually control yourself as a person. And that you view the non-aggression principle beyond just the, the surface. See, the non-aggression principle is I cannot use force or coercion or violence against you unless you use it against me. Okay, But that doesn't mean if you walk up to me and push me that it's totally okay for me to pull my gun out, shoot you in the balls, blow off your two big toes, pee on you, and leave you laying there bleeding on the ground to live or to die based on God's destiny. That, that's not what that means. That if I, if you aggress on me, my only use of force needs to be sufficient force to respond to your aggression. Which is dramatically like they teach Sistema Martial Arts. Maybe that's why this makes so much sense to me. But unless your force is lethal, my force should not be lethal in kind. And it takes a mature person to become an anarchist. Because it's like letting go of fairy tales. That someday it'll all be right. Because the last piece of this I want to kind of point out is, if you cling to the statist ideology, what you're saying is, if my side takes over, everything will be better than it is right now. Well, here's news for you. Unless you're a libertarian, your side in this country has had complete control. In my lifetime, I have seen Democratic Congress and Republican presidents, both houses and a Republican president. I've seen the exact opposite. I've seen uh, Democratic and Republican. I've seen Republican uh, Congress and Senate and a Democratic president. I've seen split with a Democratic president and split with a Republican president. I've seen all Republican in both houses with a Republican president. I've seen all Democrat majority in both houses with a Democratic president, and I haven't seen this country made better. I haven't seen us move toward greater liberty and freedom. I haven't seen it happen. I haven't seen the size and scope of government decline at all. I haven't seen our crumbling infrastructure fixed in spite of a, a near trillion dollar stimulus that was supposed to fix our crumbling infrastructure. I've seen us sold out by both sides. So, when you cling to this belief that, that, that if we just get the right people in, they can fix it, what you're clinging to is a fairy tale. That a system built on coercion and a system built on violence and a system built on theft and extortion can be made whole, can be made right, can be even brought down to those things being a minority of what occurs in the system. And it can't be. It's like believing that when you lose a tooth... You put it on your pillow, and you wake up in the morning, you turn the pillow over there, and there's a shiny silver dollar that a little being with wings really flew through your window, took your tooth, and left you the coin. 
It, it's a great story, and it helps a child in a developmental period go through something that they, maybe they're not ready to go through. Their tooth coming out. What the hell is this? You know, it's scientific. Don't worry about it. The other one will grow back. They're five. Five, six, seven, eight. They don't get that. We've got this little fantasy for them. And it's fun. And it helps their mind expand. But, you know, if you, if you have a 15-year-old that comes to you, that got his tooth knocked out in a, a, a football practice, and says, well, the one upside, Dad, is I can put it on my pillow and a tooth fairy will give me a quarter. And he's not kidding. You sit him down and have a talk, right? Like, okay, look, I, I didn't know that you used to... This is, a, this is a story we tell children. There's no tooth fairy, son. Okay. There's no salvation in government. There isn't. You have to fix your own shit, whether you're work inside or outside the system. So why not see the system for what it is? Why not accept the system for what it is? Why not be honest with yourself? Because this is what it'll lead you to do. You'll say to yourself, okay, so now what that means is I actually have to do more to help people, not less. Because even though they're still stealing my money, I have to accept the fact that they're not going to do a good job with it, so I need to make sure that I help people. You're going to say, that means I need to see to my own personal safety and security like Brian Black talked about today, because they're not going to really do it for me. It means I need to be smart, and I need to know that there's no solutions inside the system. That even the system, when the system does something good, it's actually always pulled in that direction by people working outside the system. I've said it before, but Rosa Parks did not go to a town hall meeting and ask for permission to sit in the front of the bus. She committed anarchy. She broke the law. She did what she thought was right. Ron Finley in California and Los Angeles didn't go to L.A. Uh, city meetings for the city council and say, please let me put a garden in so that these children can have food in their backyards. He did it. They tore out his garden. He put in another one. They tore that one out. He put in another one. He put them in everywhere. So they started to run out of time to deal with his guards. They started to look stupid. And the people in the neighborhood started to say, hey, wait a minute. I don't think so. And then out of their good kindness of their hearts, after being made look like fools, the city started making allowances and provisions to allow these gardens to exist. But it was an anarchist action that caused that to happen. There's a group in Arizona, near Tucson, that started cutting the public streets with a concrete saw, cutting the curbs out, and directing the stormwater flow into the median between the sidewalk and the street. Completely illegal. And began planting trees and creating depressions and treed streets with no irrigation. Flipping Tucson, Arizona. And created communities to the point where the city said, from now on, we put in new developments, this makes sense. The curves will be cut, this design will be followed, specified it in. It didn't happen because they went and begged, it happened because they worked outside the system. Every problem we have today can be solved if we decentralize it. Water, food, Energy, you name it. If we take away central, that doesn't mean central systems can't exist. But we disrupt the monopoly on centralized systems, we can fix all these problems. If we get all the hurdles out of people's way where they can actually grow food right in their neighborhoods, son of a bitch, they'll do it. But I want to finish today with asking you a question. I'm very sincere about this question. And it's not will you become an anarchist, because it's not like getting saved in a church. right? It's something you... There's no mysticism to it. You actually have to actually understand 
100% why you have changed your mind and be ready for it. And once you do, it is like the Matrix. It's like the plug comes out and everything changes. But it takes different things for different people to be willing to get there. And if the logical case that I've made for you today isn't enough, I'll ask you a, a truly emotional question. Where does your loyalty lie? Where does your loyalty lie? Does it lie with the person across the street who may vote differently than you? Or does your loyalty lie with the politician that you support and their loyalty lie with the politician they support? Who are you loyal to? Who would you shed blood for? So many of you think every soldier is a hero. And if a soldier bleeds, he's a hero. No questions asked. Man, there's people that wear our uniform that are the finest men and women that walk this planet. And, and, and I'm not worthy to stand in their shadows. And as we said before, there's crap bags in the military too. Sometimes crap bags get wounded. But you believe that everybody that serves is a hero. Okay, they don't serve for Democrats. They don't serve for Republicans. They serve for the man next to them. And when you do get them to admit who they serve for back home, it's everybody. It's everybody. So where's your loyalty lie? My loyalty is not to my government. My loyalty is to my fellow citizen, my fellow man. My loyalty is to everybody and anybody that I see that lives life the best they can without harming others. That's where my loyalty lies. Think about that when you hear today's song. Today's song comes from the movie Young Guns. It's called Blood Money. It's by Bon Jovi. This is an extended version that tells more of the story. Put aside for the fact that the historical William H. Bonney, uh, Billy the Kid, was a killer and a murderer. This is art for art's sake, and it's based on a movie that made Billy less of a murderer and more of a killer. There is a difference. It's probably not very true to history and had a lot of entertainment embellishment added onto it. But the song, if you divorce it from even the historical movie and the non-history link, the song itself is a story of betrayal. A story of the switching of loyalties in return for monetary gain. When we support politician A over politician B, because it benefits us more than someone else. No matter which side of the dichotomy you're on, that's in fact what you've decided to do. Since this is better for me, I'll ignore the fact that it steals from others. But Jack, I want less government. But the people you're putting in power want more power. And the only way they can have more power is with more government. Where do your loyalties lie? Again, this is an extended version, a live acoustic version of this song that was originally performed in 1990, I believe. And think about that through this weekend. When it comes to all these moral and ethical questions of how would we, or how would, who are you loyal to? With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't.
Would be marked on that grave. 